It's the final word, story time, 146. Adam Collins with you. Daniel Norcross down the computer screen from me. The plan was to record in his living room earlier, but we didn't quite get the prep done in time. I'm not going to blame the Matildas and the Lionesses, but that was the contributing factor that we had to watch the football. It would have been, um, it w- it would have been un-Australian to have prioritised story time prep above the semi-final, and something similar for you, Daniel, as a fan of the Lionesses. Hello again. Oh, well, it's lovely to see you back again. It's been so long. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was rather fun, wasn't it? It was an extraordinary game of football. Uh, yeah. Whoever was going to win, I was going to be happy with it. It's one of those rare occasions when I could watch a game uh, knowing that football was going to be the winner, whoever it was, well, or England. Although I have seen people say that now England have won the Ashes because the men's and women's were both drawn. So yes, I, I saw. I saw. Run run. I, I saw a couple netball? of people. What about netball? <laughs> I saw a couple of people using f ashes. You know, there was the mashes and the washes and the and the. Fash. Yep. I'm not entirely sure. They understand that fash has a different meaning. Uh, that mm, might be lost. Got to be careful with that. Lost upon it's, a, it's a bad syllable to get mm. wrong, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it can yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, here we are, and we're going to crack straight on today because, um, well, let's call it for what it is. If you stay on the line with me all night, you're going to get in trouble with your wife, and if I stay on the line with you all night, I'm going to get in trouble with mine. So so let's let's keep the small talk to a minimum. Say that we're playing Nerd Pledge, which is the game we play with our fine contributors, the, the engine room of the final word that make this possible week in, week out. We're now recording up to four episodes a week, I think it is, when we're not doing dailies. When we're doing dailies, it's like nine or ten a week, and if not for the uh, brilliant support of patron uh, members that we've had since 2019, we simply wouldn't be here, or we'd be doing a very limited product. We'd be doing, you know, maybe once a week or once a fortnight or something like that while whilst uh, rummaging around uh, doing other bits and bobs. But we are committed to this podcast, and indeed you are as well, Daniel, as one of our co-hosts. And the way you can be part of this is by um, contributing to the Patreon page, and we'll talk more about that at the end of the numbers that we're going to deal with this evening. The first of which is Joe McDavid. He has sent through 361 with a clue. He says, new pleasure, the unveiling of his second of three reinventions. The number relates to the instrument, not the mastermind. So the, the premise here, for those who are new, is that with that clue and with that number, 361, Six one AUD. If you're wondering what the currency is, uh, that will relate to something crickety, and when we will give it our best shot. And you know a little bit about what Joe is intending from the clue. Daniel, take it away. Joe McDevitt, you have declared war on my brain, <laughs> and for that you will not be forgotten. I will hunt you down, and I will find you, because the words of your clue are truly cruel. For a start, I believe you. I believe that you're using words correctly. When you say the second of three inventions, reinventions, the second of three reinventions, I instantly assume that this is a person who has had four inventions. That is the correct way of reading it. Right. So, like, when you're thinking of Kylie Minogue as the... The BBC commentator today, by the way, incorrectly just described her as a Brit. I think that that's unreasonable. I'm so sorry about that. I'm yeah, she, so she's sorry. She's our Kylie, nevertheless. Mm. She's uh, someone who, well, the, the expression more reinventions than Kylie Minogue means something. You know what it means. I know what it means. It's in the pop culture. It's in the zeitgeist. Who in the cricketing zeitgeist do you associate with inventions and reinventions? That's the, that's the, that's the real quiz here. And being a mastermind. 
Because, right. let me break this down, right? And this is why it's so painful, because this is about the clue, because I don't think I've got the answer. I've got an answer, <laughs> but I don't think I've got the answer, Joe. You've used a couple of things here. You've said mastermind. Now, to me, a mastermind has to be either a bowler or a captain. No batters are masterminds. They mostly went to public school in the country that I went to, and uh, they're, they're mostly pretty entitled, and they go out, they see a ball, they hit it, uh, they don't get, like, stress fractures. They uh, live to a ripe old age. They're quite nimble, actually. I mean, I see Mike Gatty and David Gower frequently, two people of very different physical stature. <laughs> if they'd been bowlers, they would be in wheelchairs, right? <laughs> They're not. They just stood around. They hit a ball every now and then. They went back and they watched everyone else do the hard work. I might be a bit biased because I spent too much time with Stephen Finn, but it, you know it's the truth. Mm. The other mastermind could be a captain. And so... Only, well, one captain remotely springs to mind, and that's Warwick Armstrong, who might have had inventions and reinventions. But I can't make it stick. He's long enough, long enough in the tooth to make that happen, but I can't make it stick. So I'm obviously gravitating towards the late, the great Shane Warne, mm -hmm. much spoken about on this podcast, because there are four phases of Shane Warne's career are so beautifully laid out by Andy Zaltzman in Wisdom. Yeah. A, an and, article. And I think you're still on the right page, even with the even with the Kylie Minogue reference point here, right? So we know that the, the late Warney um, spent a lot of time on Instagram desperately trying to engage Margot Robbie, who is the star of Barbie and, you know, magnificent actress uh, and great. Of course. And, and, and routinely would comment on Margot Robbie's posts. I expect with a view to chancing his hand, you know, he, he was, he, You'd he, imagine. he was always, he was pretty keen in, in the Instagram re replies to, to give himself well, he, his best he's shot. He's not trying to get tips about Topia, is he? I no, mean, no, you know, he's, no, 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 that, that's, that's right. A general rule. And, and, and it makes me wonder whether he did the same with Kylie Minogue, whether there was a, was there a correspondence between Kylie Minogue and Shane Warne over the years. They, they surely would have bitten each other's it orbit. It has to have happened. Yeah. Got to have happened, but I couldn't make that stick either. <laughs> because, if you go back to the clue, the cruelty of this clue, Joe McDevitt, is that it doesn't refer to the man, it refers to the instrument. So I've got two major conundra going on here. <laughs> like, who has got that many reinventions, and how can I make that stick to something? Now, the thing about Warney is that Warney gives us, time after time after time, a number of different balls a number of different phases of his career that, that appear, zooters, flippers, sliders, all of that kind of stuff. But Andy Zaltzman has broken it down into four distinct phases. The thing is about the four distinct phases that the only time that Shane Warne takes three for 61, and it is 3.61, and did he get them all with zooters and sliders? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Was it a game that's incredibly famous? Yeah. It's a game. It's a game in 1995 that in Australia play against Pakistan, when Inzamam gets them over the line by one wicket. Ah, ah. The, the Salim, the Salim Malik game, among other things. I'm pretty sure that's when Salim Malik uh, asked Warney and Tim May to throw it. You've got it spot on. You've got it spot on, Colo. That's exactly the game when all that is happening. How can I make that stick into a third reinvention? I can make it stick into a second, just about, right? 
uh, into a sorry a second invention. Right. So now I'm like doubting Joe McDevitt, but I can't doubt the correspondent. Like he's probably been very very careful with language here, and he's talking about an instrument. How am I going to get an instrument out of this? But I have got this test match, and this test match is one of the great test matches. It's, it amazes me that we've seen so many great test matches, and yet this test match has not been just routinely re-mentioned. Hmm. So, to fill everybody in, this is Karachi, right? Games don't tend to re- produce results in Karachi, as we know. Australia, 337 and 232. Pakistan, 256. They're then chasing 315 to win, right? Well, 314 to win. And staggeringly, they get there. They get over the line. And in the background, there is this awful noise around match fixing and Salim Malik. There are articles written about this game that go deep. When the ninth wicket falls, Waka Yunus goes 258 for nine. In Zamamul Hak, who is batting at eight, presumably because of a night watcher, but below Wazim Akram. He's batting with Mushtaq Ahmed. And somehow they get Pakistan over the line against Australia. In a game where, like, if you've got match-fixing allegations, as a general rule, the fix is that Pakistan are going to throw it here. Because you're going to struggle to go to Australia and go, we'll pay you if you throw it. It's going to be a bit more tricky. So the insinuations that are around that game are all, all became part of the cases that came up later. No. Kayyam Commission and heaven knows what else. In that game, Shane Warne took three for 61. But for the life of me, Colo, I cannot make this clue satisfy me. I can provide an answer, but I can't provide the answer. No, no, that's okay. What is the instrument? What's the instrument? What could the instrument be? The instrument has got to be, and it's a mastermind, it's got to be the ball, hasn't it? I th- Could be the bat. Yeah, I, I think where you're going is ultimately correct. So the final ball of that test match was an unusual uh, conclusion because Pakistan required four to win. Yeah. And there was a missed stumping. Warren was bowling, missed stumping, four buys, Pakistan win, Ian Healy. I mean, four buys from Healy to Warren, it seldom happened, didn't it? And Healy yeah. broke a finger later in the trip and Phil Emery replaced him and stood in for the, the final test. I think it was the third and final test and the one-day final that they were also playing in in... In a, in a triangular series over in Pakistan. So we've, we've dealt with the Emery bit before, probably not with the, the Warren Healy, Inzamam, Salim Malik bit. What I will do, though, for Joe, I'll give him some bonus content here with you because when we were speaking earlier today, you got on a bit of a roll with something and I said, no, 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 no. As Cam Fink, our great um, cameraman, always says to Jeff and me, don't let the fizz out. If you've got something good, don't talk about it before you hit record. Wait till the moment is right. And I feel for Joe because you're, you might feel a bit, you know, a bit dissatisfied at the moment at the answer Daniel's given. I'll give you this because it involves Salim Malik. Now, you and I both like doing that thing where you link players who have played with or against each other, right? That's something yep. that you know most cricket nerds are into this, this kind oh, of yeah. shtick. Yeah. Well, I've found a better way to do it than the conventional way. I think, I think, in that we we all know that there's a way that involves James Anderson linking up to Alex Stewart, who links us up to probably Gooch, who gets us to, I think, oh, Gooch, Gooch and Close don't play test cricket 
together, sadly. It's annoying, Close, that, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. Close played in 76 and Gooch played in 75, but not together. And so on and so on it goes, back to Rhodes and Grace and all the rest of it. There is another way. So if you just want to start with um, – we'll, we'll do it in reverse. And, the, and it's far more fun this way, and you go through Asia to do it. So let's start with Stephen Peter Devereux-Smith. You might have heard of him. He yeah. played his first test match – or his, his first – Test series, but his first test match specifically was against Pakistan at Lords. The captain of Pakistan, who retired on the spot at the end of that test match, was Shahid Afridi. So they overlap by one test match, Shh. right? Oh, nice. Yep. Shahid Afridi made his test debut, or he played a test match with, in 1999, Salim Malik. Would you like a bet on it? Salim Malik played his first test match in 1982, uh, where Zahir Abbas was still playing. Oh, yeah. Zaire Abbas, you take him back to 1965, where he played with Hanif Muhammad. Oh, you're going, oh, you're getting to almost to the war. Well, well, watch this. Hanif Muhammad played in Pakistan's first ever test match with A.H. Kader. Huh? And what did A.H. Kader oh. do before he captained Pakistan in their first test match? He played for India. He played for India before partition. A.H. Kader, when he was starting his test career played a test match with another man who represented two countries, the Nawab of Pataudi. Junior or senior? One of them. The, the original, the original and the best. The original. The man who played, oh. the man who played in Bodyline. The Nawab of Pataudi crosses over with A.H. Carter for India, remembering that Carter went yeah, on to yeah, play for yeah. Pakistan and the Nawab played for England first. The Nawab so of Pataudi- you got a Pataudi, lovely pivot there. Took, I know, I'm, I was quite, I mean, I must admit, when I worked this out a few weeks ago, I was titillated. Mm, I would be. Uh, yeah. You take him back to Victor Richardson. You can go all the way. You can, you can go anywhere if you want me to know about Pataudi. One place you can take it is to Victor Richardson, who he played yeah. against in Bodyline. Victor Richardson in 1924 played against Wilfred Rhodes. I think that's the right connection here. I've just got myself stumbled up a little bit, but. No, I think that's right. He would have played against Wilf Rhodes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, if nothing well, he else. He certainly played well, in 26. Well, so, yeah. I was going to say, it would have been the final test of 26 at the Oval. That's the one I'm missing here. So Wilfred Rhodes comes back for 26. Richardson plays in that test match. Rhodes takes us back to 1899, where, of course, he and Grace cross over for but one test match. Grace's final test match, Rhodes' debut. We've talked about it many times before on Storytime. The 1st to the 3rd of July, 1899 at Trent Bridge. And Grace gets us back to, well, effectively the start, not the start, but the start, you know, the one before the start. Um, mm, and there the are many The start of all recorded there, time. There it is. So you, you go through Pakistan and India, you go through two players who played for two countries around the war, either side of, in the case of the Nawab, and either side of partition, in the case of A.H. Kadar. And that's how you do that's it. Abs that is absolutely beautiful. And it's amazing that no one's ever thought to go that way before. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to know. Do you know how? Do you know what gave me the what idea? The idea got, got given to me by listener Lenny Phillips, who's an absolute belter, great bloke. Met up with him last year in Brisbane. He was the one that picked up on the idea. He was talking about the longevity of Steve Smith, and he's like, "Gee, there's only one leak, one link between Steve Smith and and uh, Sully Mullick." Mm. And I got thinking, "Well, who would have played with Sully Mullick? Maybe Zahir Abbas." And and so it went, and so it went, and here we are. Can I set a can I can I set a task for your listeners? Yeah. What's the shortest route? through every single test-playing nation. What, what, add some qualifications. So you've got to use an island, Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, Bangladesh. Oh, good, 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 good. We've got the, get we've all got, the way back we've to got the start Nerd of CSI. Time. I'm going to ban anyone who's involved in Nerd Pledge CSI from answering this. So 
your cohort of Matt May, Sean McGiven, Glenn Finkeld, you ain't playing here. You two, you got Pat Rogers. You guys are, you guys are different level of, you know, they're the guys who help us with the numbers, Daniel. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, well, they can, of course, in the privacy of their own computers, work this out. But as a competition on our Discord channel, yes, I think we rule them out because they'll work it out in like two minutes. However, that's a great idea. And the thing is, there'd be some quirky guys that have played for two countries in there as well. You know, your John Tracos, for example, jumps out at me because Tracos, yeah, would have played. But how do you? Because you, but you've got to be you've got to be smart in getting via Afghanistan, Ireland, and Zimbabwe into the main meat of yes, the situation. Yes, yes, because Afghanistan. You got your Aravindas to silver. Well, well they Afghanistan might get, only played might get very once, exciting for right? you. So you might get to Afghanistan right. via India, and then in, but India hadn't played yeah. Ireland, so you might have to link the chain via someone like Tiger Tim Murta, who played against. It's you, fiendish. You've actually, it's fiendish. You've got to I mean, start. Can, can you do it? Well, you've got to start with Afghanistan, I think, because they've played the the least amount of test cricket. So you've kind of got to go Afghanistan, Ireland, Ireland, England, and then someone who's played in one of those England, t- like Stuart Broad, for example, played in the most recent one. Uh, but, but, but Broad didn't play with Murtagh. I know he did. They played against each other in 19 because mm. Broad took a bunch of wickets on the final day. Broad gets you back to, you know, the 09 Ashes where you mm. pick up a, a Ricky Ponting and then Ponting gets you back to whoever he started off against. Hang on. Don't, don't give them the answer. Sorry. Joe sorry. McDevitt. Sorry. Joe McDevitt. You've basically given me a fiendish, horrendous puzzle, and my gift to you is to give one back to you. Mm-hmm. Come back, come back to me with that, right? And also, tell me what this is about, because I've tried every configuration. I even got to a point when there's another nerd page number we'll come to later, which yeah. is 635, and I got so mangled in my head. Test number 635 is when Gary Sobers declares on 92 for two, and I was right. thinking, he's, un- he's unveiling a cryptic crossword for declare <laughs> and then I thought no that's the wrong it's the wrong number it's a wrong clue so McDevitt you've messed with my brain I need to know or else I'll hunt you down and you need that you need to answer my question this is Jeremy Coney and I'm on the final word I know I said when we started the show we're going to try and make this relatively brisk and we spent nearly 20 minutes on the first um, answer. That's very... Let's crack that's off. Very, very story time energy. The second number today uh, comes from Brendan Sharry, who is a new pledger, 1485 in the AUD. Very generous. Thank you, Brendan. The son of Damien. Um, so great to have you with us, Brendan. Damien replied to you and me on Twitter today, pondering where I was watching the World Cup semi and, and found it interesting that I was watching it in your sitting room underneath the portrait of Douglas Jardine and, um, and, uh, God bless and, and, drink, and drinking from a, uh, a mug that said, uh, we still hate you, Thatcher, which was nice. I still hate Thatcher. I still hate and Thatcher, my mug sorry. said, I am a twat underneath at the bottom, <laughs> So thank you. So we've got a father-son combo with Damien and Brendan, Brendan being the new pledger. I'm pretty sure we're... Obviously, well, I say I'm pretty sure. Obviously, yeah, it's one or the other, aren't I? I'm pretty sure it's going to be an Australian cricketer for it's an AUD. But a quick diversion first, and I'll show you some workings. Now, we haven't done a date in a while, so I was interested in the first of the 485. You know, April's full, April Fool's Day is an interesting birthday, as a matter of course. Joffrey Archer is born on the 1st of April, but 10 years after. Mm. Had it been 1495, we could have told a story about Joffrey Archer and his date of birth. David Gower. Is an absolute beauty. Now, Gow was born on the 1st of April as well, but 1957. Uh, we could have made it work though, Daniel. You had an idea here. Yeah, well, in 1985, that was his greatest moment when he captained England to the ashes. So, born on the 1st of the 4th. And in 85, 
not only did he uh, smash 700 odd runs, yep. uh, 157 famously, he uh, waved the urn to the camera and was then asked how how he was looking forward to the West Indies series. And he said it with typical cheek. And he didn't mean it, of course. <laughs> he said, well, I'm sure I'm sure the West Indies are quaking in their boots. <laughs> uh, we know, David, and we know what he meant by that, which was, oh, God. It was, <laughs> it was okay facing Bruce Yardley. I, I'm really not looking forward to Patrick Patterson. Yeah. Uh, and then he went, he went and got smashed 5-0. But in, in fairness, it's one of the most extraordinary series. Very brief digression. He scored 370 runs at an average of 37. Doesn't sound great. The next best was Graham Gooch, who averaged, I think, 22.6 in right. 10 innings. They were all out 10 times, apart from yes. the number, number 11s, <laughs> because they got absolutely marmalised by a totally brilliant team playing at their absolute best on the most fiendish wickets. Mm. But mm. Uh, yeah, so that could have worked. Well, I'm, I'm going go um, I'm, I'm to I'm hit up Gow. Gow is umpiring the game I'm playing on Friday. He's not been on the final word. Oh, you should get him yeah. on. Yeah. He was going to do our live show and it fell through. Not saying Finney was second choice. Not, it wasn't like that. It wasn't no. like that. But simply that there no. was a time there when Gao was... Anyway. Well, yeah, let's get, let's, get, let's get him on. Right, where are we? Okay, so we could have done the birthday thing. But whenever I see yeah. a, a number like that, I'm drawn to match figures. You know, one, four, eight, five, 14 for 85. That's always my instinct. Yeah. Whenever a number comes in in the teens, yeah. the first thing is to check out the match figs. And I did. Because they're sexy, aren't they? Yeah, they, they are. are. Fucking I mean, sexy. You, you, can't yeah. Get, you yeah. can't get an ugly 14 for. There's always a yarn no. behind it. There's always something interesting there. Unfortunately, the page I normally go to for this stops at 14 for 60. So I had to get Andrew Sampson's support on this. But there is a noteworthy 14 for 85 and taken by Leslie O'Brien Fleetwood Smith. Chuck Fleetwood Smith, as he was always known in the game. The wayward genius of Australian cricket in that wild interwar period. Fairly loosey-goosey human being compared to his contemporaries, Tiger O'Reilly and Clary Grimmett, who, who is often competing for a spot in the Aussie side with, well, later on he was anyway. And yeah, he, he really made an impression with his left arm spin. Uh, Chuck Fleetwood Smith and it's, a, and it's a distinctive name isn't it you know, Chuck Fleetwood mm. Smith it's the kind of name that if you're a cricket person you've you felt the need to look at his cricket info page a time or two I'm sure you're in a similar boat to me uh, oh, oh well, well he was he was L-O-B Fleetwood Low Smith B, wasn't he which, right. was, which, which was such a weird thing to see it was such a long name on a on a scorecard and he was the inspiration behind um, two of our colleagues yeah. Jared Kimber and Sam Collins who when they first started out on their journey into their different paths to superstardom, uh, set up the Chuck Fleetwood Smiths. I, I was a bit, didn't Chuck Fleetwood Smith play in the famous 1938 Oval game as well? Oh, well that, that, that's where he always gets brought up. Actually, you know what? Tough you know what I'm going to do? Time. I'm going to drop in here, and I hope this works, and if it doesn't, you can blame me later. Here is the theme music from the Chuck Fleetwood Smith, Jerry Kimber, Sam Collins. The Chuck, Chuck Fleetwood Smiths That makes me warm and fuzzy listening to that. That's when I first, I, I'd, I'd had a, I was a bit of a reader of Jared's blog, but when he moved to Cricket yeah. Info and I first met Sam in the summer of 2012 at the front of Lords when he was patrolling with his camera for the Chuck Fleetwood Smiths, trying to get interviews with anyone wearing red trousers. So, you know, that yeah, was, they that loved was sort of fun that. stuff they did. Trailblazers. I loved, I loved that. I, I, I still see Sam occasionally. He's, he's a frighteningly handsome man. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to scare off Anybody out there, but he really is one of the most genuinely, frighteningly handsome men you've ever met. And yet, 
seems completely unaware of it. And very gifted. He made the Gaza documentary. Obviously, he and Jared yeah. made Jared. Jared made uh, Death of a Gentleman, the cricket doco mm. that caused quite the stir way back when, 2015. But um, the Gaza doco on BBC a couple of years ago is one of the best sports Super. documentaries I've ever seen. Not least because it never actually uses any of the pundits' faces. It's just their voices. Because they had so much overlay. Being Paul Gascoigne, you know, has there been a more photographed footballer ever? Uh, and so many moving images. Anyway, enough about Sam. Enough about the Chuck Fleetwood Smiths. Let's talk about Chuck himself. Yeah, so he could bowl with both arms as a kid. <laughs> and maybe it says a little bit about his personality that he chose to stick with left arm wrist spin because there aren't many of them. Mm. And there, there aren't many people like Chuck who was born in Stall, right near where the Stall gift is run, had a bit to do with it as a family. Moved to Melbourne, went to Xavier, a high profile uh, Jesuit school. He was probably expelled, uh, went back to Stall uh, and then dominated. Probably. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it was never... Yeah it, yeah, it wasn't conclusive that he was expelled, but in all probability. And I think, you know, the life he went on to lead would suggest he did. And uh, yeah, a bit of a diamond in the rough there and eventually ended up back in Melbourne uh, at St Kilda where, you know, a couple of blokes called Blackie and Eyemonger were in, you know, the test team or had just been in the test team. At this stage, we're around 1930, 1931. Uh, Eyemonger's still playing test cricket, of course. Um, so it's hard for him to, to get, uh, you know, to, to progress, but it progress he does. Uh, he eventually uh, takes 11 wickets on his shield debut uh, and um, leads the averages in his first season with Victoria from a limited sample size in, in 1931-32. Then he went with Bradman on that weird honeymoon trip in 1932. I, I don't know whether we've spoken about this before, Daniel. I certainly have myself on, on the podcast where Bradman convinced Jesse after getting married to, yeah. to, to, to let him go away to America for a number of months uh, and, you know, it would be an easy way to have a honeymoon. What he probably didn't tell Jesse was that instead of shagging, he'd be, I think he played 70 of the 90 days or something like that. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's where he first came into contact with Chuck. I mean, I, 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 this, by the way, is why Minus Abishane and Steve Smith are the way they are. Because everybody tries to work out what the hell made Bradman different from everybody else. Yeah. And, you know, what made Bradman different from everyone else? was that he kept on just hitting balls. He hit balls all day, every day. And so dear old Stephen and Manus, they end up in their desperate attempt to emulate. That's, that, that, that is the Australian Botham. Yeah. You know, we, we, we think back to the 1980s, it's oh, Ian Gregg, the new Botham, and David <laughs> Capel, the new Botham. That all these entirely unlikely uh, possibilities, Derek Pringle, etc. All very fine cricketers, but... Uh, for Australians, being the new Bradman, it's it's a possibility. It's there. It's like a it's a pipe dream, of course. But how do you get there? And you get there by plinking a golf ball off something that will send this thing in crazy directions. Mm. You shadow bat for four hours overnight. You don't sleep during test matches. You become entirely immersed. It's it's kind of a form of mental illness. And, uh, and sorry, I've interrupted Bradman. And <laughs> no, Chuck no, 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 not at all. I mean, not not sleeping at all through a test match is something that Chuck Fleetwood Smith did as well, but for very different reasons. More in line with your <laughs> predilections, to be perfectly honest, um, and mine. Uh, so he ends up at St Kilda, as we see. Hi, Catherine, in the back of shot. Hello. Uh, that's Daniel's wife making a cameo for those of you watching on YouTube. If we put this on YouTube, we probably will. So, yeah, anyway, what was I saying? He's playing at St Kilda. He's playing some state cricket, not getting a lot of an opportunity. Goes away to America with Bradman. Takes 249 wickets at eight on this tour of America and Canada. <laughs> so a sense of the opposition there. Should have used him in body line. They should have used him in 32-33, especially after they dropped Grimmett. Uh, but there, it was a more conservative approach they were dealing with there. And Hammond had hit 200 against Fleetwood Smith in a tour game. 
intentionally, they went after Fleetwood Smith. They were worried about him. England were worried that he could be a point of difference for Australia with his left arm spin. So they made a determined effort to smack him in the tour game, and they did. Now, um, Buzzball. Buzzball. Yeah. A uh, uh, 32-3 was basically Buzzball. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, make them make good decisions. Make it hard for them. He's on his way by then, though, right? So at the end of 32-33... This is where we take our diversion to our number, 1485. After the bodyline test matches, later in the season, they're playing Tasmania in a three-day game, remembering that Tassie weren't in the Shield at this point. So this was a a non-Sheffield Shield first-class fixture. And this is where the Victorians did all sorts of damage to Tassie across the journey. They hit their thousands in an innings. They did mean things. You know, I think I think this is where um, uh, Ponce would hit one of his quadruple tons against Tassie, didn't he? Oh, um, nasty. It, and this, this is the bit that really tickled me. The game in question in March 1933 was played at a place called Punt Road Oval. Now, without knowing it, Daniel, you have been past Punt Road Oval before. Um, oh, actually, maybe you haven't because when you go to the G, you come from the city downwards, don't you? You don't come from Richmond yeah. across. Well, when it, no. Actually, I think you have... I've got a feeling you and I did go to the pub in Richmond one night where I just my, my sense is that you Well did. also well I, well I went I went to I, yes I might have gone past that when I went to Richmond to your place when I abandoned my wife who had food poisoning. Oh no that was East Melbourne. That, to, that, to be fair that was right, up the hill okay. as well. But we're, we're in the right precinct right. <laughs> the MCG car park it's so big it's got this other ground in it. That's the best way to describe it to you. On Punt Road the 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 the, the major right. like uh, the major north-south road that runs alongside the MCG car park, there's a ground called Punt Road Over where the Richmond Football Club have their headquarters and for a long time so did the Richmond Cricket Club. And in this March of 1933, for the first time ever, they used it for a first-class game. Now, I went back and took a look and I pondered, when else did they use it? Because I know there is a, a number of games later on. Not at all until a game I went to where Victoria were playing Tassie again in 1999. I bunked off school. I don't remember whether I had the consent of my parents to do this, but I certainly was meant to be going to school this day. I would have been in year nine. But I thought, what a novelty this is. There's going to be a Sheffield Shield game played at Punt Road Oval. I must be there. And I went to the cricket for the day with Sean Tung, who I've mentioned on the show before, instead of going to school at Lindale. So Chuck Fleetwood-Smith takes 14 for 85, which we'll come to in a bit in the first game there against Tassie. In the second Tassie game, they're a Shield game in 99. I was there. They, they played two games there that season. And they played three games there in 2000, 2001, including a game against Queensland where I didn't look this up, but I remember it. Shane Warne broke his finger when trying to take a straightforward catch, hanging underneath the ball, broke his finger and missed the entire summer, the entire test summer, which meant that Stuart McGill and Colin Miller bowled in tandem. It goes back to your piece earlier that you were describing from Andy Zaltzman. He starts one of the Warne segments when he returns from that finger break injury, which happened at the Punt Road Oval in Richmond. Anyway. Back to 1933. That's beautiful. Back to 1933. That's beautiful. Uh, Tassie yeah. are all out for 90 on day one. So Chuck takes the first three. Then there's a run out. Then he takes the next six. He's missed out. Oh, joy. He's missed out. Yeah. He's missed out on a perfect 10 because a bloke. Did, did, do you reckon he. A bloke, did he affect the run out himself? No. It could have been him. A bloke called Joe Plant ran out a chap called Ron Ward. So oh. he was left with one left on the on the shelf. Ten overs, nine for thirty. No maidens. If only Tony Locker thought of doing that. Yes, <laughs> yes, quite. Uh, no, he wasn't a maiden kind of guy, Chuck. He made a duck into two thirty six. He's never much for batting or fielding. Had a first class batting average no. of seven for what it's worth. The second time around, he took five for forty nine for match figures of fourteen for eighty five. Tasmania all out for one sixty two. Now, nine for thirty. 
final word listeners will know is not the best figures for Victoria against Tassie. Uh, long-term final word <laughs> listeners will know because we've mentioned it well, as recently as our live show the other week. I keep forgetting what a totally insane space this is. I, I, I pop in here about five times a year, and 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 when I do, the the sort of like the normality with which you say you regular listeners will realise that nine for thirty is not Victoria's best figures against Tasmania, and. <laughs> I realise I love you all more than I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, there is a bit to that. There is a bit to that. That does sound <laughs> odd. But in context, it's our most famous storytime answer ever is, uh, is Dara Ishmael Khan and their performance uh, against the Railways of Lahore in 1964 when they were bowled out. for. They were defeated by an innings in 851 runs, the biggest margin ever. And there is a, and there is a nine for in that. And it's the second best nine for ever. The best nine for ever is Gideon Elliott, nine for two in 19 overs in 1857-58 for the Vicks against Tasmania. A record that stands forever. Anyway, um, so just to round off a few more Chuck bits and bobs, because I figure we may not get a chance to talk about him in depth again while we're here. A huge season in 33-34. Uh, took 41 wickets in seven matches, including a 12 against South Australia. Then he gets on the boat. He gets on the tour in 34 to England. Didn't get a test, but did take in the first class games. Won 106 wickets at 19. The problem was Clary Grimmett was in the way. and Yeah, fair enough. Did take three 10-wicket bags or 10-wicket matches, rather, um, when he was in England on the trip uh, under the captaincy of Woodfall. In 34-35... Well, they play both. Just play both. Just play both. Well, this is it, isn't it? Uh, you know, the orthodoxy was yeah. that there was a pecking order and so on. In 34-35, he broke the shield record. He took 60 wickets in six matches. And that was the record until Colin Funky Miller, who I name-checked a moment ago, took 67 from, like, 10 matches uh, in... It would have been 1997 when he started bowling off spin. He then took 15 in a match uh, against New South Wales uh, as part of that 60 uh, against the New South Wales team with nine test players in it. He took 15 in the match to better his 14 for 85, which were previously his best figures in test in first class cricket. That guarantee in, in, on, on presumably a sticky dog because we're looking at yes. uncovered wickets. Yes, we are. And if you're playing in Sydney, and we know you know what a demonstrable hellhole Sydney is, it just basically rains constantly. So the only way you're actually bowling at Sydney in the, at that time on an uncovered wicket is on a sticky dog because it stops raining, it gets really hot, and Chuck Fleetwood Smith appears. Well, so, we're, we're, we're going to talk shit, about... Sydney. Should have thought about that. <laughs> we're going to talk about sticky dogs in a moment. The most famous sticky dog of them all, perhaps. So he, he does get a test belatedly in South Africa in 35-36, takes a wicket in his first over in test cricket, five wickets for the match, but he, but he got injured. Um, and the injury to his hand over there really... Um, fucked with his 1936 so much so that he required surgery and he missed the start of the 36-37 Ashes and as we all know England go 2-0 up against Bradman's Australians the new captain Bradman is under the pump they're thinking this bloke might be a genius but has he got the you know as you described Mm -hmm. it earlier is he a mastermind is he a tactical whiz or is there something not quite right about his leadership when it comes to uh, a test side and so on but Chuck's fit again to play the Melbourne Madness Test match of January 1937, where Grimmett's pensioned off uh, at that point. They get Chuck back, who played one Shield game on the way in and took 15 for 96. So perfect timing to better his best figures again. So in this wild Test match, which uh, you have to read the scorecard to truly believe it, where on in the first innings, Australia declared their, their first innings closed at 200 for nine. 
um, because they were trying to get England in as quickly as possible after the rain. Um, and then England uh, declare for, what was it? It's uh, 80... 72 for eight. 72 for eight. That's it. There you go. But when they declared, Chuck Fleetwood-Smith, who didn't bat in the first innings, was asked to open the batting in the second as Bradman flipped the order to try and get through as many um, to save Because he's yellow. Because he was yellow. Yeah, that's right. And that naught not out from Fleetwood Smith is crucial because by batting through to the, to the close and only losing one wicket after England declared, it did protect Fingleton and Bradman, who came out the next day and made 100... No, not the next day, sorry. Two days later, the rest day, which was glorious weather, and by the time they'd got back for what was the fourth day, but the third playing day, it was a different surface entirely. Fingleton, 136. Bradman, 270. The innings that Wisdom described at the turn of the century as the best ever. And they um, they go on to set England 689 after making 564. Chuck's up for it. He takes five for 124. Um, picks up the captain, Gubby, Gubby Allen. A huge win for Australia to get back in the series. Now, what happened after that? Uh, is an interesting part of the story because Chuck was a, a drinker and a cruiser. Um, he got in trouble for getting on the piss after the win with Stan McCabe and a couple of others. And part of it was the suggestion they'd been disloyal to Bradman's captaincy. And they cited their behaviour after going 2-0 down. But Fleetwood Smith didn't play the first two test matches. So there's always sectarianism going on at the time, these internal divisions. And a lot of people wanted McCabe to be the captain, not Bradman. And, you know, the Catholics and the Masons and the Protestants and whatever else was going on here. Um, so he got kind of towed up unfairly there. Uh, but he was actually quite close to Bradman, Fleetwood Smith, reportedly. You know, they, they'd been on that USA trip together and they, 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 they obviously were very different types of human beings, one being a teetotal, one being a pisshead. But they, they had a, a bond and that came through in the next test match at Adelaide. So... This is Fleetwood Smith's finest moment as a test cricketer, I think it's fair to say. It's a, a close test match all the way through. But in the, the fourth innings, at Stumps on day four, Wally Hammond's on 39, and he, and he looks like he was in a bit of a mood. He was going to haul down whatever it was that was set. He was in, in the frame for. Uh, and then the first ball of day five, Fleetwood Smith uh, bowls a ball that, that spun a mile through the gate, was described as perfection. Cardis, he was suddenly visited by genius. Um, Tiger O'Reilly said it was the best ball he ever saw in a test match. Bradman, if ever the result of a test match can be said to have been decided by a single ball, this was the occasion. And Bradman had said to Fleetwood Smith just before they went oh. out to went out for that day he goes I want you to win the game for us and he did with a ball that was you know described as one of the best ever delivered I guess it's kind of got the same energy the as ball of the century ball of the century your ball of the century before the ball of the century hey how about that so just to, just to describe that because my commentary skills are now coming to the fore here it's Chuck Fleetwood Smith first ball of the day coming in left arm round the wicket I'm guessing between the umpire and the stumps he's coming probably, round the wicket probably I would imagine to get that angle into. Yeah, you know what? I think I think it, I think he was over the wicket. I think he was over the wicket because really? they, they talk so about he, the drift. So he's tossed. So he's tossed the ball. So he's tossed tossed the ball wide of yeah, off stump. He's, and dr then he's drifted spun, it and then it spun sharply through the gate. And it's come back in and it hasn't hit Hammonds because if it hits Hammonds pads, he's not out because no one's out LBW. Of course, in 1936. Of course. <laughs> so, so so it so, has so, got to have gone so far wide that it spun all the way back past his inside edge You've got into it. the stumps. That, that's what's played out here. So That's what that ball is. And, and he, he completes the game for Australia in style, having taken four wickets uh, in the 
first innings. He takes 6 for 110 in the second, a 10-wicket match. Australia win by 148 runs. The series is suddenly level. And Fleetwood Smith has been instrumental. A 5 for at Melbourne in the fourth innings, a 6 for at Adelaide uh, in the fourth innings. And uh, they say that his name is being chanted over and over by the, the adoring throng of fans mm. until he had to go out and, and take a curtain call on the balcony. So suddenly, he's an Ashes hero. He does a civic reception back in his hometown of Stall after the win in Adelaide before they go back to Melbourne and, and, and win the, the final test match as well to come back from 2-0 down, uh, the, the series of 36-37. He took three wickets in the final innings there too, including Morris Leyland, who he worked over uh, when playing for the Levis and Gower 11 uh, in the 1934 series. So there was a, a bit of form between those two. Ends the series with 19 wickets in three test matches at 24 his first test matches at home goes to England in 38 everyone wants to you know everyone talks about the one for 298 you've already touched on it the worst figures ever um, so I won't I won't do it again why don't we go back one test match to Leeds when he takes seven for 107 in the defining Ashes test of the series how about that instead mm. so uh, that enables Australia to have a five wicket win go one nil up after rain in the first three test matches and of course that's that's sufficient to retain the Ashes because they'd won in 1936-37 mm. he took four for 34 to roll them for 123 uh, after taking three in the first so seven wickets there they were only chasing 105 I might have got the numbers slightly wrong there but the point is uh, seven for 107 in the decisive test match unfortunately what happens at the oval means his test bowling average goes from 31 to 37 it's kind of a dreadful thing to happen isn't it because you yeah know, they, don't, they don't play test cricket you know when the war hits and that's it for him he's of a certain age and, and so it goes but yeah. you know but still a huge Victorian career 295 wickets at 24 up there with the very best of them uh, has the most tenfers and the most fifers ever for the Vicks um, did that at a strike rate of 44 in first-class cricket. Um, Grimmett's strike rate was 52, and, and O'Reilly's was 48. So he may not have the, you know, the the overall body of work of those two, but he clearly had mm. uh, an extraordinary talent. He touch did, of the cool deep yadavs, just yeah. a little touch of it. Yeah, cool you deep, know. cool deep I running mean, in behind a, Ashwin and Jadeja. You mean like there is something there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. getting those opportunities. Yeah, there's, there's, exactly. There's a, there's a, there's a little bit of that, and then the, the first hint of being found out. You get jettisoned. Yeah. And in the old days, the first hint of being a, a leg spinner of being found out, you got jettisoned. Yeah, they've all had it. Um, left arm wrist spin is even more spooky. Yep. And as you think about players today, like Jake Lintock, for example, who are lovely, lovely purveyors of that art, called Deep Yadav, but I don't think coaches and people totally appreciate the left arm. What's well, the most unusual? It's the most unusual it's, of all the bowling. It's the most unusual. Yeah, you see the fewest yeah. of them, and you know, I think, yeah. um, I think the sort of historical baggage of the nickname that was used for left arm wrist spinners might might have contributed. It to doesn't that help a little bit. So you know, as as we've alluded to a little bit, he had his issues, but he was loved. You know, they they talk of Fleetwood Smith singing on the field, pretending to catch butterflies, for cheering on his football team, his imaginary football team, um, in, when he was fielding. So he didn't, you know. So, yeah, he, he, he was loved for what he did on the field, but he did drink off it. He was good-looking. He was a shagger. He had issues in the military during the war where he worked as a warrant officer, like Bradman. They punted him, basically, in the early 40s. His life did go off the rails, unfortunately, uh, until 1969 when 
Um, he was done for theft and the former Prime Minister, um, Robert Menzies, uh, came in and helped him um, access legal assistance because they knew each other from when Fleetwood Smith was playing uh, cricket and, and Menzies was a, a politician in Melbourne before he was Prime Minister. He finished life happier though because he, there was that intervention towards the end and a lot of his former teammates uh, became part of his life again. Uh, however, from his days of being homeless, uh, he was quite ill and eventually died of uh, cancer at age 62. But an enigma, I suppose you would say. One of the greats, in the middle of all of it, took 14 for 85 against Tasmania. Chuck Fleetwood Smith, our gift to you, Brendan Sharry. That oh, was beautiful. All right, Daniel, next for you, Max Waters, 6.35, AUD. And the clue, which I quite enjoyed, actually, because it's quite to the point. Two balls remaining, four results possible. Yeah, it's an absolute beauty, this. Uh, and I thank him in, in a way that I, I don't thank McDevitt for what he put me through <laughs> with 3.61. I thank you for this because it's kind of beautiful. So I've only got a limited space in which to work here. There are the tied test matches. There are matches which have come down right to the wire. I don't even have to think about white ball cricket because there are four results in play. Yeah, there's the tie the draw, the win, the loss. And that makes my life, McDevitt, by the way, if you're listening, much, much easier. <laughs> so now I can zero in on really tight finishes. The tightest finishes are obviously tied matches. And with two balls to go, we know that all results are possible because we know it ends in a tie. But how am I going to make 6.35 work well I think one of the most famous examples of a game that was tantric and misinterpreted and uh, and brilliant was England against the West Indies at Lords in 1963 mm. famous game because everything that went before in the full five days and it went all the way to the very last ball there are very few matches in test cricket that go to the very last ball you know draws nine wickets down those go to the very last balls your ties don't go to the very last ball it's a general rule you know both uh, ties although, went to the uh, both test well, ties one went to the final the, play. was it the seventh ball of the eighth it was the seventh ball of the over in 1960 and the fifth ball of the over I in 1986 so. so it was the penultimate delivery in both of them it was something like that. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was. It was something because spooky. That's just so insane. Yeah. Right. So, so what am I looking at here? I'm looking at all four results. So the nine wicket draws. Very few of them. In fact, none of them create that kind of drama at the back end. What they're doing is they're, they're a side that needs to draw, and that is the drama. You think back to Panasar and Anderson and. The fitness coach who came out, really quite a healthy-sized fitness coach, <laughs> came out with uh, with gloves and chat. And he seemed more to me like someone who was sort of like in in encouraging lengthy discourse than uh, sort of <laughs> providing any kind of physical instruction. But <laughs> anyway, uh, th 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 that's what tends to happen at the end of... I'm get down draws, but there is one famous one, and that is Lords 1963. Mm. And Colin Cowdery, a whole play has been written about this. 
which I went to see actually last year at the Hurlingham oh, Club. Yes, with Smithy. With Smithy. The other Ian yes. Smith. He, the other, one, one of the other Ian Smiths who lives in Kettering and is an academic and he wrote this incredible play. Chris Cowdery played the part of his dad. <laughs> I, had to leave you, I had to leave you with Smithy uh, in Birmingham when we, <laughs> we got on to... Oh, he wanted me to play. It was quite. It was he wanted quite, me to play. Yeah, it was quite late Cowdery. at night. Yeah, that's, that's, no, that's no, quite no, tough. No, like, it yeah. was, no, it was quite late at night when um, <laughs> when we were talking about how we would have responded to have um, answering the call uh, in 1915 and 1916 had we been of age, and uh, he was very strident in his views, uh, and so were you, and you two were juking yeah. it out, and I thought it's time for me to go to bed. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, neither of us would have fought, I thought. Because uh, <laughs> that way lies possible death. So, you know, kids, don't don't sign up or fight at any point. Where was I? Yes. So, Cowdery. Colin Cowdery. Colin Cowdery. And this is one of the, the apparently, the, the bravest things that a human being has done. And this speaks right to the very heart of the madness of English mythology around test matches. Because... I was minus six when this happened, and yet I started really being conscious of cricket in 1976. And I would reckon that within about three weeks of showing genuine interest in cricket, I knew that Colin Cowdery had done something so brave mm. to ensure that England did not lose. He walked out to bat with a plaster cast on his hand because... England just lost their ninth wicket, a run out. They were still trying to win, mm. understandably, because at this point, and this is where the number becomes kind of spookily important, as England are making their way to this target, and it's, in those days, a big target, because people didn't, didn't chase anything, really, in the uh, in the fourth innings in those days. It was just, you know, it, it wasn't done. You know, it was Ideally, you would... Um, you would fall a heap or you would just play for a draw. And annoyingly for the West Indies, they'd set a target of just 233 after a very marvellous series of different innings. They're all incredibly close together. It's the kind of match that you totally want. West Indies 301 in their first innings. Featuring players like Conrad Hunt, Gary Sobers, Rowan Canai, Basil Butcher... Everyone raved about Basil Butcher. I never really got to see him, but apparently a, a thorough smacker of the ball. Derek Murray was playing early on in his career. I, he was in the first test I ever saw. Hall, Griffith, Gibbs, Frank Worrell was captain. Huge game. So That's one of those nice links through. It. You use him. You can use Derek Murray because he, he's, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's instrumental at the very end of the 75 World Cup final on the same ground 12 years later. Exactly. So the Whitney score 301, England reply with 297, and they've got just this magnificent collection of names. I mean, let me just let me just ooze them out for you. Mickey Stewart is playing in 1963. Doesn't play that many games, Mickey Stewart. John Edrich, a young, relatively young John Edrich, if you think about it. You know, he's still playing in 1976. Ted Dexter is captain, and he scores his famous 70 and 75 mm. balls. Mm. Famous, but also it was so famous that they bothered to go back and find out how many balls he'd faced. Because <laughs> if you look at the actual Crick Info record for that game, 
only three people's balls are actually registered. Mickey Stewart, two off 19. John Edridge, first ball, duck. And yet he batted for five minutes. He was batting at number two, so presumably first ball, second, over. Caught Murray Bowl Griffith, the ledge pushing outside the off stump. Ted Dexter, 70 off 75, which many sages, including the likes of Cardus, said was one of the finest innings we've ever seen. It's an absolute miracle. Basball, because it was the 60s, and he's, and he's got a strike rate of 93. How is this happening? It's like giving them an attack of vapours. Ten fours in there as well. Ken Barrington's 80 in 190 minutes with 1-6. 1-6 from Ken Barrington is not recorded in terms of balls. Neither is Fred Titmus's 52 not out. So there's, you know, weirdness within that scorecard. And the scorecard, because it was weird, got me really excited, Carlo. And I thought, I'm on to something here. So West Indies with a slender lead of four. Make 229 all out. Basil Butcher, 133. We know how many balls he faced. 261 with two sixes. Because they recorded that. No one else got basically anything. Five wickets for Truman. Four for Derek Shackleton. And then England faced this target of 234. And I know that you're asking me, how on earth in any way does this relate to 6.35? I can totally get where you're coming from. The man's gone on a rambling, absurd discourse. Just about a test match that he resents and is annoyed by because he was told that it was important, but it contains one of the easiest acts of bravery you've ever seen in your life, namely Colin Cowdery walking out to bat, at the not bat, at the non-striker's end, with a broken arm, with two balls to go. He's never going to have to face. There's nothing brave about this at all. If he hadn't done this, he would surely have never been spoken to again, never allowed through the portals of Lords. I mean... It's a good it's, point. It's I, mean, I, I think even when we spoke about this earlier today, my impression was that he was walking out to the non-strikers end for and over. I always thought of it as he was going out there for and over not two deliveries because even when the Nathan line, when the Nathan line down the stairs of the of the pavilion Correct. happened I was on commentary at the time and that was the immediate thing I reached for on commentary I'm like well just like when Colin Cowdery went down these steps in 1963 Nathan Lyons doing it here and I almost certainly would have said on SEN where Cowdery went out for the final over of the test match but it's not the final test match and you're right at worst he's got to face one ball and to face and he's one not ball. facing one ball, is he? He's not facing one ball because they're not taking a single. They're not taking a single, right? I they mean, can control that. They need, yeah. they, need, they need six. They need six to win off two balls. Yeah. So, you know, they're never taking a single. Right. The only possible way that they might have got Calgary on strike is a three? But, I mean, really? It's Would improbable. you even yeah. know? It's, 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 it's so improbable. So yeah. Calgary's basically got to stand like a lemon because that's the way cricket works. I've done this myself. I, I spent the last over of a game in a club match. I was brought into the first 11 at the last minute because yet another annoying bastard in a Porsche had to like give up at the last minute because his wife was making him go to a wedding but didn't tell anyone until Saturday morning. So I had to leave my role as second 11 player, go and play in the first 11. And they had a really rather good quick, fast bowler. They scored 240-odd back in first because we won the toss, put them in. We were 85 for nine, 
me and the other second player drafted in blocked out the entire game. And in the last over, the last over, I literally sat down behind the crease facing the bowler as he ran in. <laughs> and he bowled a 21 ball over containing 15 no balls, oh. all bouncers. <laughs> because we had batted out for the last 18, 19 overs and it was annoying him when, you know, we were supposed to have lost by now. So... Colin Cowdery's bravery was to make it to the crease with a broken arm. That's not brave. I mean, I love you, Mark Nicholas, but it's a bit like saying that Steve Harmison's slower ball to get rid of Michael Clark in the penultimate ball, was it, of the Given day? Given the moment. It turned out to be the last ball. They was brave. That wasn't brave. It's just, you know, you try these things out. All he's got to do is walk to, be to fair, the bloody to, crease. To, to be fair, Nico did say to us when we interviewed him on calling the shots that he, he acknowledged that that piece of commentary that Harmison doesn't quite marry up to the moment. He did. In hindsight. And so. I love him for that. Me too. I love yeah. him for that. Because, because you know, it, it's it's one of those moments where we misunderstand bravery. And there was nothing brave about what Colin Cowdery did. He, it's the commentary there simply, as well. Am I, am I right in saying again, this, this is, we used that piece in calling the shots as well, I reckon. It's because it's Brian Johnson on telly, I reckon. I think. Doing that last over. And he yeah. and they, the narrative is built partly around, you know, because Cowdery by then had such a reputation and all the rest of it, and it would be enhanced over the years to come. Um, well, I, 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 at a moment like this, falsely enhanced his reputation. Yeah. I mean, he's, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be seen as a, as a brave man. I mean, he went out to play for England at the age of 40 in 74-5 against Thompson. Yeah. Tom. Yeah. I mean, that is a ridiculous and insane thing to do. But to cite the broken arm as in any way an act of bravery, he basically stands at the non-striker's end for two balls. That's what he does. And the reason why it relates to 6.35 is because when he came out to bat, if you remember, the clue was two balls to go, all four results possible. Mm. I haven't been able to find a game where 6.35 works. So the tied test matches don't work with this but right. six to win six point three five what's three five well you know i kept banging on about the scorecard you and did. how kind of like weirdly unfilled it was there is one strike rate that is in here because there is one batter well there are three batters actually in the second innings whose balls are registered dexter two off 19 they chose to do that I suppose because he got 70 off 75 in the first innings thereby proving the fallibility of the human male uh, Fred Truman naught off one because it's notable when someone gets a, a golden duck eight other batters are not registered but Brian Close is and in a beautiful teasing moment for lovers of story time Brian Close is going to feature later on in this podcast mm. and on this occasion, he scored 70 from 198 deliveries, which, when translated into a strike rate, is 35.35. <laughs> it's so 35, it's unreal. <laughs> right? Now, I mean, I mean, I don't care if that's what not, right, not what you're yeah, thinking, yeah. but you're, you're having that because it works, baby. I, I, I appreciate where this has landed. Six, three, five, two balls remaining, four results possible. The six tick, because they did the six runs. 
The two bowls remaining, yes, four results possible, of course. The 35 will be something else, but it's surely this game. Max Waters, thank you for your 635. And Daniel, a great answer. Cowdery, the myth has been debunked. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. All right, sliders music. Uh, We have gone through the portal. We have changed worlds. It's 22 hours later, and Daniel's got Metro Bank fever. At least he had it for a while. Surrey got thrashed today. Before we go any further, I should tell you that this show is brought to you by the Lord's Taverners, Uh, some of the best people in cricket doing great things. I'm in um, Angmering myself now, around the corner from Arundel, where I'll be playing for the Lord's Taverners tomorrow, as we spoke about on The Daily Show, Daniel. If the rain holds off, I'll be taking the field for the tabs and we're with them in Scotland next week as well. We've had the live show with them. Uh, we're, we're intertwined with them at the moment and anybody who wants to run a long way for the Taverners via the final word should let me know now because next year the London Marathon and the Edinburgh Marathon and Half Marathon are all at your disposal. You can raise money for them. You can hang out with us. It's going to be a good old time. Yeah, I, I won't be doing any of the running. You know that that's not really my bag, but I support everybody no, no. who does do it. And it's a tremendous cause, it really is. And uh, if you go to any events or Lord's Taverners events, you can see for yourselves the people that it helps up and down the country from disadvantaged communities as well as uh, from disabled communities. So it's uh, it's a remarkable thing that they do. And we're thinking of them particularly at this time, of course, because on the day of recording this part, Sir Michael Parkinson has recently died and he was a... He uh, has. Former president of the Tavs. He was a big noise there. Um, was always hugely supportive of the Laws Taverners. Loved his cricket. Played his cricket up in, wasn't it, Barnsley? He's a Barnsley, big, yeah. big mate of Jeffrey Boycott and uh, mm-hmm. obviously of Dickie Bird and the like. Uh, a cricket man through and through. So uh, we, think of, we think of him and we think of the Taverners at this, uh, this difficult time. Sending condolences to the family. A titan of broadcasting and, um, and a great great cricket lover well said and all of the uh, information to sign up to the tabs mailing list i'm sure there'll be more about parky uh, that comes out uh, from them in the fullness of time uh, I, I suspect we'll be wearing black armbands tomorrow because of it i would have i would have imagined given his yeah. association with the tabs we'll see have you ever worn uh, a black okay. armband uh, have you ever taken the field with a black I, armband i have you have I, I have a number of times, actually. I find them quite difficult to wear. I don't like tight things on my arms, mm. um, so I, I, I tend to um, find it a, a fraction tricky. But it needs must, needs um, must. with these things. It's, it's the right thing to do. Um, okay, where are we? We have got two numbers to go. The one I'm going to deal with next is from Jack Jorgensen or Gorgensen. Or Gor- how would you – I think it must be Gorgensen. It's a J, it's an O, it's an R. Then a Jensen. Yeah, Jorgensen. Gorgensen. Jorgensen. There we go. Yeah, Jorgensen. 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 Yeah. Maybe Jorgensen originally. Um, 285 AUD. His clue to me was sticking as ever to the WA theme. Dirty old bastard or not. Dirty old bastard? Dusty old bastard. That's better. Dusty old bastard or not. This player was influential in WA in many ways. And he's right. The player that he's alluding to was most influential as a player and off the field as an administrator as well. It's none other than the late Tony Mann, who was a, a West Australian league spinning all-rounder. I don't think he would have necessarily got the designation of all-rounder if not for achieving one famous thing with the bat, which we'll come to in a little bit, Daniel. But, mm. yeah, he, he, he's from Middle Swan, which is, um, 
I suppose these days we associate that being from where, where Simon Kadich started his cricketing life, um, who was the uh, the final word Christmas guest last year. Great man. Tony Mann uh, got his first run for WA as a teenager in 1963-64, albeit in just one game against an Australian 11. I'm not sure why the Australian 11 were playing WA. Maybe because WA was so strong through the late 60s into the 70s. Anyway, it was a thing that happened. Poor old Tony Mann, our, our man in question, made a pair and was demolished by Redpath and his 202 that he made in that tour game for the Australian 11. Anyway, Tony Mann, a few years later, was back again in WA ranks, but only really ever in a bits and pieces capacity. Um, he took 25 wickets in 1969-70 at 27, which is a pretty good return for a spinner in WA, but from far fewer opportunities than, than you might think, given that he went on to play test cricket. But from that quite good season. He, he nearly made it to New Zealand in the 69-70 uh, representative tour of New Zealand as a 24-year-old. So you might remember, Daniel, that often Australia would send second 11s yeah. to, to New Zealand, which were, which were um, you know, I, I think they, yeah, they, they were seen as like a way of giving something to New Zealand without giving them much. I know Jeremy Coney often gets um, his back up about the Australian oh. 11s that went to New Zealand where it wasn't test cricket. He, he, he hates it. And actually, it's, it's something I've noticed about New Zealanders generally, that uh, they are actually united uh, over a hatred of the English and the Australians on the basis that they feel that yeah. we're both deeply patronising to them. They, can get, they, get, they get very <laughs> chippy about this. And, uh, and, and, of course, the thing to do is to smile and nod and pat them on the head because it makes them more infuriated. <laughs> Dial up the patronising uh, starting point yet further. Yeah, back to Tony Mann. He didn't go to, uh, to New Zealand, but he did make a shield ton in 1970-71, which, again, kind of firms up why he was seen as a, a bit of a dual threat. And that's what's of note uh, when he eventually bolts into the Australian team when, when the Packer carnival arrives. He'd only taken seven wickets uh, the previous summer in three games. So his career wasn't really going anywhere in 76, 77. But in 77, 78, it's kind of game on. Everyone is in the mixer because so many players have been signed up for World Series cricket. And for Tony, man, timing was everything, really, because they played four Sheffield Shield games before the first test match against the touring Indians. And he picked up eight wickets in the first game of the season against Tasmania, including Pfeiffer in the second dig for them. Uh, three wickets against New South Wales. That never hurts because usually half the test team are from New South Wales. Um, a couple of 20-somethings with the bat there as well. Four for against Queensland. Three for against South Australia. And what do you know? That's enough to go from fringe West Australian player to Australian leg spinner. All in the space of about five weeks good work. And they... You know, they're missing Kerry O'Keefe, they're missing Ashley Mallett, who are off as the main spinners in, in World Series cricket, which provides this opportunity. And, you know, it kind of makes sense they turned to WA spinner, given how strong they were. They'd won the Shield in 67-68, 71-72, 72 74-75, 76-77, and they were on their way to winning it again in 77-78, the summer to which we're referring to. I guess the other context here, Daniel, is that nobody had a clue what was going to happen in these test matches. Bobby Simpson comes out of retirement in his 40s to lead Australia. There are so little known about these replacements, so few of whom have played test cricket before, that, you know, up against Gavaska and Vengasaka and Amanath and Vishwanath and Prasanna and Beatty and Chandrasekhar, like, you, you can easily see a world where India win that 5-0, right? Yeah. Like, even if they are the visiting team. Well, absolutely. And indeed, the following year in 78-9, that's when... England marmalised that understrength packer ravaged side 5-1, didn't they? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I, right. I, I, actually, 
to bring it right up to date, it's a little bit like watching Surrey play the Metro Bank One Day Cup with a squad of 11, because they were the last 11 players who were available today. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. they, they, they begged and borrowed. Well, they didn't borrow because, strictly speaking, Tom Laws is theirs, but they got Tom Laws back from the Oval Invincibles 100 team. And um, <laughs> that, that made the 11. Uh, otherwise, they had 10 fit players. Had 13 players out on 100 duty, a whole bunch injured. Uh, that was a little bit like Australia in 77, 8, 78, 9, around that time. Uh, I remember yeah. I remember watching, I didn't see the 77-8 series, so I'm interested to know what happens in that one. But in 78-9, of course, there's some very fine players. Rodney Hogg burst onto the scene, Alan Hurst. Mm, mm, but these were names mm. that were unfamiliar to English ears because and eyes because we'd not seen them really before. Peter Toohey making his debut and Graham Yallop captaining, yep. that sort of thing. Oh, I read the, the book about that summer on holiday 12 months ago that Alan Lee wrote about... Um, both following the, the test series that was taking place and the Packer cricket that was happening at the same time. And, yeah, England winning 5-1, but more interest being in what was happening mm-hmm. at the sort of unofficial games, if you like. But, yeah, 12 months before, the, the Australian test team was still very much the Australian test team, even if it was with this understrength uh, squad to pick from. And the first test match is an absolute belter. So it's a thriller. Australia 166 all out. Man makes 19 on debut. Vital runs, you would say, because India are all out 153. He takes three for 12 in his first bowl in Test cricket. So he's had a pretty good start in a low scoring game 19, then three for 12. Australia, the second time around, make 327. Man makes 29 more. So again, he's had a. He's, had a, he's made a contribution in all three innings, especially the, those three wickets with the ball to, to finish off India. Bobby Simpson, upon his returns, making 89 there. And in, India is set um, 340 for victory, and they nearly get it. They get 324. So a victory margin of 16 runs, which is, you know, That's as, a as we know, having gone through yeah. a... Yeah, having gone through a test series that have had a few results a bit like that, we we can um, we can relate to how good that must have been must have been to have started that series at the Gabba. Um, Man was wicketless in the fourth innings, but played a role in, in three of the four, and with no expectations on them, that would have been a pretty cool moment for the establishment um, as they were known. Then the second test was just as special, especially for Tony Man. India make four hundred two. Man wicketless. Australia make three hundred ninety four. Man makes seven. So it's not going so well, especially when India make 330 for nine declared in their second dig. Man's wicketless for the third time in a row. As a leg spinner, if you're wicketless um, three or four times in a row, you're probably going to lose your spot. So that's the context. He's failed with the bat, had two wicketless innings with the ball, and Australia has set 342 for victory. And then John Dyson gets out early uh, in the chase to, to Bishop Beatty. So he's elevated Tony Man to night watch. He's in at number three to be the night watchman. And he goes on to play the innings of his lifetime on the fifth day. Um, Wisdom described it as slow and hard to dislodge. Other reports that I happened upon said he was fluent. Um, What I can tell you for sure, by the end of it, he was the first night watchman for Australia to make a century in test cricket. 105 from 160 deliveries, all on his home ground there at the Wacker, all with his career on the line, and all in the aid of a test win that would see them go 2-0 up against the odds against the Tour. Indians and and so they did. He got them halfway to their target. They eventually won it by two wickets. So they've won the first test by what was it? Did I say fourteen runs? Sixteen runs. Sixteen runs for the first test win. Two wickets for the second test win. Uh, And they they get over the line with Tomo and Wayne Clark uh, picking up the last twelve runs uh, with eight wickets down. Of course, that was what Australia were down 
at Edgbaston earlier this year. So he, he drops off from there, unfortunately, Tony Mann, um, and he's ultimately dropped after four test matches. He finishes on a pair um, the same way that he started his first-class career um, some, uh, what would have been 13 years earlier as a teenager. But Australia do win the series 3-2, and Mann is highly influential in the first two uh, of those. Uh, he wouldn't make another first-class century, and he never took more than the 39 wickets that he collected in that season of 77-78. Uh, you know, there are about two more seasons where he's playing pretty consistently, but then they're diminishing returns through to his retirement in 1983-84. But he finished with a really nice milestone, an even 200 first-class wickets and a tick over 2,500 first-class runs. He stayed in the game. He went from being a school teacher, and this is the other point that was being made um, by Jack in his clue about having a broader contribution. He worked at the Wacker for 20 years as the, the what they called the, the manager of the mm. Wacker, and that led towards him recruiting a bloke you might have heard of called Adam Gilchrist to WA, getting him over from, from New South Wales. So he was overseeing, I guess, a second glory era for West Australia when they won uh, two Sheffield Shields in, in the mid-1990s. Uh, Tony Mann died of pancreatic cancer in 2019 at the age of 74. But you look at night watchmen who've made centuries. There's mm. Jason Gillespie. He's the only other Australian. There are six in test history. And I would argue there's only three in test history because you can't count Mark Boucher. Yeah, you, Mark, Mark Boucher? Boucher got two, no, no, two no. centuries night watching. No, you no, can't no. have a guy who batted seven in test cricket be classified a night watchman for this for mine. And the other one, Nassim Algani, was a Pakistani who often opened in first class cricket. So I would say the only true, the only there's only three real, I can't remember who the other one was now, but the, the three that I'm willing to consider, the one I can't remember, Jason Gillespie and Tony Mann, who wore cap number 285 with distinction at a complicated time for Australian cricket. And that is our number 285 AUD for Jack Gorgensen, uh, a man who contributed an awful lot to West Australian cricket. I love it. Uh, England have had two guys who came very close. Of course, most famously, Alex Tudor. Uh, a sorry yes. man stranded on 99 I'm sure you've told that story before on the final word yeah. um, and it, it's still one that it's still one I cannot fathom that with still so many runs wasn't it like wasn't he on didn't he need about five of the last 25 runs that's and then correct he just went that's absolutely yeah. correct that's absolutely correct and indeed you know they won by seven wickets I think so <laughs> Thorpe could have just blocked his last two balls or whatever and, and let uh, Tudor get over the line I often thought that, that was crazy and uh, the other famous one from an English perspective there are two actually there's Eddie Hemmings at Sydney I want to say was it Sydney in 82-3 uh, but the most yep. famous of all is of course from my favourite series 1932-3 where Harold Yarwood oh, yeah. Harold Larwood Harold, gets, Harold Larwood yeah, yeah gets uh, 90 I can't remember 92, 92 I want to say I want to say that, 92 was, was, that at, was, that at the, was that at the Gabba I can't remember I feel like that was at the Gabba but yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's Larwood's highest score in, in professional cricket. I don't think he made a first-class 100. I feel like Larwood... Anyway, either way, you're right. It would have been quite the thing had Larwood made a century in body line in 30, So let's, 30, call, let's call him the only real night watcher to get 100. I'm, I'm happy with yeah. that. There aren't many. There aren't yeah. many. And, you, you know, Jason Gillespie, of course, but, but there aren't Gillespie, many, certainly yeah. for Australia. Our last number of the day is for you, Daniel. Jeremy Burke, who's been a great supporter of uh, ours for a long time on the show. Four double zero uh, AUD, 4.00. But he wants to clarify that this is not a Julio pledge. A Julio pledge is where you don't have a, um, it's a two or a five or a $10 pound contribution and, and you just, you know, you, you, you 
straight to the point and, and there's no need to consider a nerd pledge. But for Jeremy, he says, ignore the AUD because this relates to England and is in two parts, 40 and zero. The 40 separates two England captains and the zero connects them. Think of a final word trope as a starting point for one end of the equation. I have created the numbers purely to lead up to what I think is a killer punchline that speaks to that last trope. Daniel, your last number. Well, it's a beauty, isn't it? And it sent me into the weeds because there's quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of clues in here. Um, I've got England mm. captains. I've got the number forty. Uh, forty years apart is what I'm looking at, yep. and I've got the zero. And I've also got the final word tropes, and there there are a few final word tropes, of course. Um, sure. I mean, one of the most recurring is the Bannerman, one that we all love, know and love. Highest percentage of runs scored in a completed innings. Um, the other one might be trying to go back in time, like we did earlier in the podcast, trying to go back in time to get the yep. shortest route back to the start of recorded cricketing history. <laughs> but then the the other tropes are how guys do on debut, and obviously everyone gets very excited by people getting 100 on debut, but it's the low scores on debut from people who go on to have remarkable careers or big careers that that rather yep. excite me. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, 40 years apart, I want to find two guys who've ended up being England captain who've got ducks on debut. And my first thought would have and was Len Hutton because in his first test match he mm-hmm. scored naught and one. Did he not? But his career started in 37, 37, 8. So 37, 40 years on from that takes me to 77. Doesn't quite work for Graham Gooch, no. who was a man who famously got a pair on debut. It was tantalisingly close, Colo, but um, Graham Gooch made oh, his, yeah. his debut you would in have had, you would have had a duck in Yeah, so, so 37 for Hutton. So you're 38 years on when Gooch makes his pair against Australia. Yeah, but 38, okay. it's no quite. cigar. It's no cigar. No. So I faff around with some other captains. You know, I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking for luminaries like Grace. I'm seeing if I can actually go back back in 40-year spurts to find ducks that take me back to the dawn of history, you know? But then, well, dawn is what happened. It suddenly dawned on me. I was thinking, 40 years apart, well, there are two men here that I know got ducks on debut. Brian Close ended up being Mm. England captain, and quite scandalous. 1949. Yep, 1949 is debut. The youngest England cricketer there's ever been until Rehan Ahmed, who mm-hmm. had a very different kind of debut, took five wickets on his debut. And 40 years after 1949, ah. in 1989, a yes. man who captained England on, on a number of occasions, a man who was... Uh, one, and, and the man who was the final words Christmas guest the year before Simon Kadich was. We mentioned that before. It was yeah. the, the, summer, the, the, the Christmas before it was Michael Atherton who made a duck on debut as well in the 89 Ashes. He did. He made a duck in the 89 Ashes. So I've now got, I've got my two guys. They're 40 years apart. They're both England oh. captain. Both got ducks on debut. I'm going to just run you quickly through, though, their ducks on debut because they're, they're different kinds of games. One is, is a game that many English cricket fans who take their team a little too seriously have decided uh, never existed. I'm, I'm pretty sure Stuart Broad has voided this test match. But I'm going to start with Brian Close because 
I want to take you to an era of austerity, a, a time where English cricketers were basically having to live on gravel and sawdust. We're into <laughs> rationing. And Brian Close is a man mountain, even at the age of 18. Now, in 1949, there was a little bit less competition for places, you know, because the war had happened, a lot of careers had been ravaged, and cricket starts up again in 1946. Famously, we've talked about this before, on a podcast with the likes of Major Nigel Harvey Bennett being captain of Surrey by mm. accident. So you've got a pretty chaotic cricket scene. And it's got a New Zealand twist to it, because New Zealand have come to England. And even though, you know, there's, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of options vying, I suppose, for a place in the England side, there's also a very, very strong spine to this team. Let me talk you through a couple of them. Len Hutton. Cyril Washbrook, Bill Edrich, Dennis Compton, Reg Simpson, Trevor Bailey, Freddie Brown as captain, the great neckerchief Freddie Brown with his uh, sort of rubescent face, Godfrey Evans, Eric Hollies, Les Jackson. These are actually big names. And then creeping in there at number nine is Brian Close. Now, Brian Close, why is he at nine? What role is he playing in this team? Well, those of you who don't know too much about Brian Close, but think of him only as... Uh, the 1976 version, 20, 27 <laughs> years later, he's jumping out of the way. Well, oh, I say jumping out of the way. He's swaying out of the way of the ones that might hit his head, and then he's turning his back on the ones that hit his ribs, much to the annoyance I later discovered of Michael Holding, who felt that this was somewhat performative on the part of Brian Close. But he'd come back into the England side back in 1976, 27 years after his debut. He had a long and storied career with Yorkshire, but he was captain of England in the 60s, but was uh, had the captaincy taken away from him because it was deemed that he was really not playing the game in the right sort of spirit. I mean, this was the time, the 60s, when players like Geoffrey Boycott were being axed from the team for scoring 246 in five sessions because they were so desperate to make the cricket attractive. They were trying to get baseball to happen, the selectors, but they couldn't do it. And Brian Close was... A, very successful captain for England, was ditched because of... Well, really because he was a, um, a, 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 a proud call-a-spade-a-spade a northerner, you might say. He did not mince mm -hmm. his words. But when he came into that side at the age of 18, he was an all-rounder, but actually more of a bowling all-rounder. So yep. he wasn't really expected to score a huge number of runs, batted down at nine. In his first innings, he was out. Caught Rabone, bowled Burt. For naught. Um, this was at an England score of 440 for nine, which was in reply to New Zealand's 293. Short test matches, of course, against New Zealand in those days, and he played four day games, much to the infuriation of Jeremy Coney. The New Zealand side featured some names that will be very familiar to listeners here Bert Sutcliffe, Walter Hadley, the, mm -hmm. I suppose the scion of the Hadley dynasty, uh, <laughs> Martin Donnelly, John Reed. Jack Cowie at number 11, the, uh, the bowler. So England had got a nice first innings lead, 440 for nine. New Zealand then bat redoubtably and irritatingly to such an extent that they make 348 for seven in their second innings. All nine players made at least double figures, 100 for Bert Sutcliffe, 80 for Martin Donnelly, no one out for less than double figures. Easily draw the game. And on that tour, that was kind of the avowed intent for New Zealand. It was to say, well, you know, if you're going to 
give us only four day test matches we're going to make damn sure we don't lose and that sure. sort of relationship continued between England and New Zealand for a lot of the time through the 1560s in which New Zealand just looked to, to draw games now that's 1949 and I told you a bit about Brian Close now I'm going to take you to the test match that gives the shivers to people of a certain age I was 20 when this match took place and I remember it with great distaste. Not because there was any skullduggery or anything of that sort, but because I'm sure you remember it will all come flooding back. Possibly a happy memory for a young Colo, although mm. actually it's, it's, I, it's I do, 34 I do. years I, ago. I, Can I, you I just about any, remember it? Yeah. yeah. I, I remember the 89 Ashes as something that when I woke up every morning, I was able to watch the highlights of and, and didn't really have the broader appreciation. My parents taped the highlights off the telly for me. Right. Well, this is the um, fifth that, that must test. must have been on the end of the night. The fifth yeah. test, and England are in all sorts of bother. They are being shellacked by a side that um, the English journalists had written off as the worst Australian side to come to England. Could you believe it? I mean, in part, I think this was a hangover from England being described as a side that couldn't bat, bowl or field in the previous Ashes and mm-hmm. came out on top in 86-7. But Australia, they're building... This this great great side that's going to emerge and overtake the West Indies under the leadership of Alan Border, and at the top of the order, Jeff Marsh and Mark Taylor, the absolute antithesis of Ben Duckett and Zach Crawley, and Jeff Marsh, in an act of cricketing vandalism, scores 138 runs in seven hours and 12 minutes, 15 fours, 382 balls. Dom Sibley will be licking his lips. It's probably probably Don Sibley's dad has that on video and has made him watch it over and over again. <laughs> well, well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, they had their Leo Sayer, Taylor and Taylor and uh, Marsh and um, did as not many have ever done, batting through the whole day. There's those famous images of them leaving the field and standing underneath the scoreboard and, and all the rest of it to start the test match. And you know what? Atherton would have bowled that day, I reckon, because he, he was did. brought into the side, not only because he was making runs, but because he was seen as quite a useful leg spin option in his... I don't know whether he took wickets, but he, he, he was certainly would have bowled. He did bowl. He bowled seven overs, none for 24. It's actually quite quite parsimonious in, in, the, in that whole yeah. innings. I think he came on, had a couple of exploratory overs on that first day. Australia ended 301 without loss. Bear in mind that the first wicket doesn't go down until they scored 329. So only another 28 runs are added before that first wicket falls. But... If you yep. just spy on the uh, on the scorecard, you'll note that the first wicket went down seven hours and twelve minutes into the match. Now, didn't they? <laughs> they would have been doing half an hour extra time in those days. So no. that suggests to me that Marsh and Taylor, with that with that fabulous um, platform, let's say, of three hundred and one for none, decided the next day just to take it a bit easy, just to have a little look. <laughs> so in the next hour and twelve minutes, score twenty eight further runs. <laughs> Unbelievably, Marsh eventually out, having faced 382 balls, which is nigh on 64 overs he's faced in that 432 minutes. Mark Taylor goes on to make 219. I mean, would you call this a collapse? The next partnership was 101 between Taylor and Boone. There were 430 for two. So at one stage, 430 for one. 502 when the third wicket went down. And then there was a little bit of a flurry. Dean Jones, Steve Waugh, Ian Healy all getting out one after the other. But they declare after 206.3 overs, right? Yuck. Now, yuck. At the end of the second day, they were 560 for five. They still hadn't declared. 
they kept going they made damn sure there were rest days in those days so there was no real need to worry about the uh, the follow-on you would you would enforce a follow-on in those days because you had a rest day so mm, this mm. was the ultimate in kind of mental disintegration which i guess is where steve war may have have honed his art, you know, under the tutelage of Alan Border, who was making absolutely damn sure that the English were pummeled into the dirt. Angus Fraserbell, <laughs> 52.3 overs. Devon Malcolm, 44. Nick Cook, 40 overs. Ian Botham, 30 before getting injured. Eddie Hemmings, 33 overs. And Mike Hatherton, 7 overs, none for 24. So England go out to bat. On the third day, facing 602 for 6. And this gives you an idea of the sort of disarray that England were in at the time, because they famously used so many players, didn't they, in that 1989 series, 30-odd players. So they go out about, not with Mike Atherton opening, and bear in mind, he's a fresh-faced young lad here, he's 21 at the time, I'm not even sure if he'd, would he probably just finished at Cambridge University, just, probably finished his third year. We start, well, he started at Cambridge as a cricketer in 87, and we're going to come back to that in a sec. Right, so he's, he's actually probably still... In the, in the Cambridge, Cambridge yeah. University first 11. And, well, Terry Alderman <laughs> wipes away the top three, facing 602 <laughs> for six in no time at all. They're one for one, then one for two when Athers goes. He comes in at number three. He's out second ball, LBW to Alderman. Absolutely no disgrace in that. Martin Moxon, <laughs> court war bold Alderman. Tim Curtis, LBW Alderman. David Gower comes in at number five. He's the captain, the beleaguered captain. The only man really to show proper resistance is Robin Smith, who makes 100 in that innings. Eddie Hemmings made 38, Angus Fraser 29. Both of them is injured and is batting down the order at number nine. 255 all out, five wickets for Terry Alderman, as, as ever. So effective in England. And of course, with there being a rest day, follow on please, lads, which they do. It doesn't get a lot better, but top scorer was Mike Atherton. He made 47 Eddie Hemmings again starred with 35 and England were bowled out for 167, which incidentally was Robin Smith's uh, one-time yes. record score for England in one-day internationals. Against Two, Australia in 93. Who took the wickets for Australia the second time? In the second dig, well, it's Lawson, Alderman, who were to the fore once again. Two for each of them. Yep. Uh, three for Merv Hughes and Trevor Hones, since we're talking. Trevor Hones, cracker. Yeah, yeah, he picked up two. The wickets spread go. around. And the margin of victory, it's one of the, the biggest and most embarrassing defeats for England. An innings and 180 runs, but made worse, really, by the fact that Australia only lost six wickets in the process. And had they declared, this is one of the lovely curiosities of this, because England managed to put together 422 runs in this match. Had they declared on 423 for one, they could have won the match by an innings and one run and only lost one wicket. I'm not sure such a thing has ever happened, but uh, no. That might be the um, that might be the uh, the killer punchline that, um, that that Jeremy's referring to. The other might be that um, you know the, the the final word trope is players linking from one generation to the next that we yeah. referred to earlier in the in the podcast. It's so tantalisingly close these two because the DB close eleven where Brian Close is still playing into his fifties that we well mid fifties might even be fifty five or fifty six when he finishes the last of those games is at Scarborough in nineteen eighty six. 
I know a few things about that game because we've talked about it on Storytime before. Ken Rutterford, who'd been out all night the night before celebrating one of the players' 21st birthdays, uh, drunk as a lord in the dressing room before play began, rattled off a triple hundred in two and a half sessions. JV Coney was leading the, the, the New Zealanders. He made a golden duck. Uh, and uh, I know that Brian Close bowled and took a wicket but went around. So, you One know, for full circle. And that was his... Yeah. Well, yeah, that was his final first-class game. So had um, had he played one more year of that caper, it was a chance that Atherton could have played against, or indeed with DB yeah. Close, had he been selected for that eleven at Scarborough, not to be. I think uh, there thank might you, be Daniel. So think, that is well, I think there might be just you know one more killer punchline in there. And when, when Jeremy okay. Burke tells us, I would, I really want to know. So in this podcast, Joe McDavid. I've, I've still got it in for you. That 3.61 yep. is really bugging me. I need to know. Yep. But I sense, Jeremy, that I've got you an answer. I sense that I haven't put all of the parts together. So do let me know because I want to know. I want to know that missing part. But 40 years separating two England captains, each with a duck in their first innings. Thank you to everybody who was sent through Nerd Pledges over the last few weeks. It's enormously appreciated. Um, I can report that since we last recorded, I've interviewed Chiteshwa Pajara at Hove um, this afternoon. It is a lovely, lovely chat. About 75 minutes, I think, we spoke for out there at the County Ground in Sussex. So that's the next episode that'll be in your feed on Monday morning UK time. I think that's how we've set it up. Patreon.com forward slash the final word if you want to help Jeff and myself and others like Daniel do what we need to do to make the show as often as we do each week, not only during a high profile series like The Ashes, but all the way around the year before we can't stop and we won't stop. Daniel, thank you for being a splendid summer newsreader this week in Jeff's absence. We will hear from you again very soon, I am sure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for your fiendish questions. I'm only slightly joking, Joe McDavid. <laughs> and we will we will talk to you all again very soon. Be sure to have a nice weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I had to go away.